as we begin here in this teaching time, um, if you are like me, you, know, you have great anticipation as you await your mail order package to arrive, right? As you're waiting for your packages to arrive at your front doorstep. I'm sure you experience great anticipation. I find myself waiting for books oftentimes. And it's exciting, not only because I get the book, right? I get the thing that I ordered. And then, of course, I get to crack it open. I get to see its design. I get to read the blurbs. And then, of course, most importantly, I get to dive into the contents of the actual book. And if it's a Christian biography, for example, it's like I get a new friend in the mail, a mail order friend. And I get to spend some good, really good time learning about this person, him or her, what drove them. I get to learn about how they, perhaps if they're Christians, be, uh, became Christians and how they learned to cling to Christ and even stand up for Jesus Christ in the midst of all that was going on in their generation. And so what I anticipate is gaining a new friend. I anticipate gaining godly wisdom and insights. I gain another mentor. That, that's what I anticipate when I anticipate a package. Well, friends, the early disciples of Jesus were in anticipation as well. Certainly not for any mail order package, but they were in anticipation for the very pouring out of the Spirit of God promised by Jesus before Christ ascended into heaven. Right, so they're not just waiting for a Christian biography to come in the mail so they can gain another mentor. They're awaiting what it means to gain God, the Spirit of God, to indwell them. Jesus said that the Spirit would lead them into Christ's truth and would empower the disciples and the church in their mission to take the gospel to the very ends of the earth. I invite you to turn to the book of Acts, and we are in chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. I invite you to turn there, Acts chapter 2, we are in verses 1 to 13. Though the book is known as Acts or Acts of the Apostles, as we've mentioned in the past, it's really about the ministry of the risen Savior. It's, it's about the ministry of the risen Savior as he works through the apostles, according to his spirit, to build the church. We get to read about the birth of the church. We get to see, about, see how the apostles laid the foundation of the church through the preaching of the gospel and how many people came to repent of their sins and, and to embrace Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. And in our passage today, we see here the beginning witness at Pentecost. The beginning witness at Pentecost. That's sort of the main idea. It's merely descriptive, and then our outline will be descriptive as it just follows the, the normal course of the, the, the passage today. But that's the main idea, the beginning witness at Pentecost. And I will go ahead and read Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt 
and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. Let's go ahead and dive into point number one, the disciples anticipate. The disciples anticipate. You go ahead and look there at verse number one. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. That's how our passage simply opens there. The disciples, uh, that is 120, as we saw earlier in the book of Acts, they are gathered together. And we know from an earlier passage in Acts chapter 1 that these disciples were praying for God's hand to move. As mentioned earlier, it was Jesus himself who had promised the Spirit. So if you go ahead and look there at, at Acts chapter 1, verse 8, look what Jesus says. He says there, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And earlier he promises that that's exactly what Jesus himself is going to do. When he ascends, he's going to pour out his Spirit upon you. And he says there, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then what happens? It is for the purpose of, look there, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. 1.8, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, is basically the theme verse for the whole entire book of Acts. He promises them that he will pour out the Spirit. They are then waiting for the promised Spirit, and they are praying, actually, for God's hand to move. This here, right, the pouring out of the Spirit, when we think about the Spirit, Jesus here is talking about none other than the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God, eternally existent. Eternally existent and co-equal with God the Father, God the Son. So this here, what he's talking about is the third person of the Trinity. As people, Christians through history, have described the Spirit of God. According to Scripture, we know that it was the Spirit who would, according to John chapter 16, 8, Convict the world of sin. We know that the Spirit, according to John chapter 3, would cause people to be born again. There you can think of like having new hearts, having new desires, having the law of God written on their hearts. According to John 16, 13, the Spirit was to lead God's people into Christ's truth. And we know too, according to the New Testament there, that the Spirit of God would be the one who gathers people into Christ's church. So in the Spirit here, as they're waiting, right, right, we think about what are they waiting for? Really, what they're waiting for is for God to begin this new harvest in the Spirit of Christ. And in the wisdom of God, the setting here, let's think about the setting that was going on right here in Acts chapter 2. The setting was perfect for just such a harvest. Tons of Israelites had already made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, to celebrate the Passover. And so uh, they were to do that in, in remembrance of God's mercy in delivering the Israelites out of Exodus from Egypt and slavery under Pharaoh. They remembered, right, as these, these, these people who largely did not believe in Jesus, right, these Jews would gather together in Jerusalem to celebrate God's mercy in passing over the families who were under the blood of the sacrifice. You guys remember that from the book of Exodus? And of course, we know that those sacrifices ultimately pointed to, right, the Old Testament sacrifices, they ultimately pointed to and then were fulfilled in Jesus, the final sacrifice, the Lamb of God who would shed his blood for sin and for sinners. And even though so many did not realize that the sacrifices and their Old Testament practices pointed to Jesus, 
I'm guessing here that for many, God was already preparing their hearts, drawing his people to himself to see Christ, the final and free, to see Christ who offers final and free forgiveness of sin. I mean, imagine that, right? How ironic would that be for people who reject Jesus to go to celebrate the Passover, the Passover where they sacrifice and offer it up to God, remembering the mercy and the grace of God, while the final, once and for all, sacrifice was shedding his very blood on the cross. It's part of this, the setting here, that makes it so ripe for this great and massive harvest. As loads of Jews from the entire surrounding area, the entire Roman Empire, right? The entire Roman Empire, as so many Jews would come up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast, many would stick around for the next feast. The next feast, that is Pentecost, which was about basically 50 days after Passover. So you think about Pentecost, it comes from Pentecostos, which is 50th, the 50th day, Penta. Think of like uh, Pentagon, for example. Uh, But here it's 50 days, right? Pentecost. Pentecost was also called the Feast of Weeks, so seven times seven, seven weeks after uh, the Passover was Pentecost, seven times seven, 49, 50th. Yet another name was uh, the Day of First Fruits. Another name here is Feast of Harvest, as it celebrated the harvest, the end of the barley harvest, and then the beginning of a new harvest, the grain harvest. So you see how the situation was just pregnant with expectancy given. First, Christ promised to pour out the Spirit. That's coming. Second, the sheer number of devout men, is, which is recorded here. There's so many devout men, the God-fearers. So many devout men from every nation under heaven, the passage says, was already there. And then third, the fact that they were there for this harvest festival. Something is going to happen. And of course, with Luke writing after the account, right, after Pentecost, right, because he's the researcher, he's the one who had gone about uh, researching everything, the history, researching Jesus, his apostles, and everything, right? He witnessed so much of it, right? He, he, writes, he writes the history Right there in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived. Also translated, right? Get this. When the day of Pentecost was fulfilled. Was fulfilled. Get this idea of expectancy that was reaching, reaching, reaching. Then finally, it was fulfilled. What was going on? They were together there in one place. They're praying. They're waiting for God's hand to move. Let's look at verses 2 to 4. And suddenly... There came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This brings us to point number two. Point number two, God pours out his Spirit. Point number one, the disciples anticipate. Point number two, God pours out his Spirit. The scene here is remarkable. For those of you who don't know, uh, those of you who are online, there are, there's, there's volunteers here. Um, but you can imagine, right, 120 of us right here in this building. And the scene is remarkable. You can set yourself in the room, right, as God pours out his spirit. You have these phenomenological occurrences. This would have, right, certainly caught me by surprise. What are they? First, you see there in verse 2, a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Think loud. Think powerful. It's not actually wind, but it is a sound like a rushing wind. Second, you see something that Luke, which Luke describes there in verse number three. 
uh, divided tongues as of fire. So your sight, right, your senses here are affected by what's going on here in the pouring out of the Spirit. It's not real tongues, <laughs> certainly not, and not real fire, but it's something that looks like it. And then all of a sudden you see these things, these tongues as a fire landing on each one of us, landing on each one of us, tongues aflame upon each one of us, us and our friends. Now, we don't know exactly what the apostles were thinking about here or feeling in this very moment. But you realize that the ones who were attuned to the word of God, the ones who knew the word of God, they probably remembered John the Baptist saying, I baptize you with water, but he, that is Jesus, he who is mightier than I, Jesus is coming. And what's he going to do? He will baptize with, Holy, with the Holy Spirit and fire, Luke chapter 3, verse 16. And then not only that, though, but if you go back even further, if they're familiar with their Old Testaments, right, wind and fire, they accompany the appearances and the very deliverance of God. Just think about, again, the Exodus, where you have the wind, a real wind there, and you also have fire. Remember how God speaks to Moses out of the burning bush, this bush that appears that doesn't actually burn, but it's, it, it's a burning bush. God then delivered the people in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, right? For those who are aware, they knew that this was an act of God. Indeed, the very presence of God in the Holy Spirit being poured out. And then to make it even clearer, to make it even clearer, which we're going to look at next week, Peter gets up and he explains that this is exactly what is going on. God the Spirit, third person of the Trinity, co-equal with God, the Father, God the Son, eternally existent. He has arrived. You look there in verse 4 in terms of the scene, right? The disciples are filled with the Spirit. We're going to get to what that means. They then miraculously speak in other tongues, other languages, and then, right, presumably they spill out into the streets, and that's where the crowd sees what's going on. They hear what's going on. They come together, and what are they doing? They're speaking the mighty works of God there in verse 11. And the crowd around them is bewildered, amazed, and astonished. And they ask in verse 12, what does all this mean? Now, I want you to look Right as, as here, this is what Peter's explaining is going on. The Spirit of God has been poured out. Look there at um, verses, verse 14. Start from there. Again, we're going to look at this more in depth next week, but look there. Um, more specifically there in verse 16, he says there, but this, let me explain to you guys, this is what Peter says. This is what's going on. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. He says, you're asking what this is? Let me take you back to Old Testament prophecy. Verse 17. And this is what Joel says, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is what, this is what it is. The Apostle Peter tells us what is happening here. This is God's divine prophecy here, the divine fulfillment of prophecy. God was bringing to fulfillment his own plan, his own purposes in Jesus Christ and in Christ pouring out the Spirit. According to his promises, he had poured out this life-giving Spirit on the people there. 
as our passage emphasizes, it was to empower his people to take the gospel to the end of the earth and to bring in the harvest. That is something, actually, that's really important here that we need to highlight. We need to highlight this here. From the passage in Joel, the pouring out of the Spirit signifies the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord had arrived. For those who turned and believed on the Lord, it is, in fact, a day of salvation, which is why there Peter makes clear in 2.21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's straight out of Joel chapter 2, verse 32. Joel goes on, actually, as he, as he prophesies the word of the Lord. He says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape. As the Lord had said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. As we see next week, Peter goes on and he preaches, he heralds the good news of Jesus, calling people to turn to Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And what happens? You guys know? What happens after Peter stands up and gives this first New Testament sermon, basically? Thousands of people are brought in in the power of the Spirit. And so the harvest has begun. And then after that, we see the DNA of the new people of God in Jesus Christ in Acts, 2, chapter, uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. You go ahead and look there. Right? They experience this unity in the Spirit of God and in the gospel. Just, just as God had promised, right? Through the Spirit, God wrote his law upon his people's heart, and in that they would experience unity. Jeremiah 31, 33. God had taken out their hearts of stone and given them hearts of flesh. And God's, as God said, he would put his spirit on you, Ezekiel 36. And where not all of Israel in the Old Testament knew God, here in the New Testament community, the New Covenant community, all of God's people in Christ would know the Lord, Jeremiah 31, verse 34. And so the, the, this new people of God in Christ who are indwelt by the Spirit they experience unity in the gospel, unity in Christ, unity in the Spirit. The pouring out of the Spirit was by the plan of God as he was creating this new people of God in Jesus Christ. Here in Acts chapter 2, right, right on the heels of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross for sin, and in his resurrection and then his ascension, God was bringing his plans to fruition through the pouring out of his Spirit. Now, if you're tuning in with us and you know yourself to be exploring Christianity or you know, you know yourself to, to not be a Christian, let me just say that here, what is written here gives the Christian great encouragement. It gives me great encouragement. The main reason why is because we see again in the background of all of this that God does for us what we cannot do on our own. God does for us what we cannot do on our own. So in the backdrop of Pentecost, right, what we see going on here in Acts chapter 2, what we have here is God doing for man, God doing for people what they can't do for themselves. We see man's absolute neediness. We see man's lack of ability, and all because of our own sinfulness. The Bible says that God created all people, and people had rebelled against God. They had sinned against him. They were supposed to live in this wonderful, loving relationship with God, but man rebelled and said, whatever, we don't really care about what you say, so we're going to make our own law. And so they lived as if they were gods, and they earned for themselves just punishment. The Bible says punishment even in hell, because what we do is treasonous against the only maker and creator and only king. 
All have sinned, the Bible says, and have turned away from God. And we can't change our hearts. I mean, the very rebellion we committed came from our hearts. So how in the world can we change ourselves? And so what we see here, again, in the backdrop is our desperate neediness, having sinned against God. We see man's need for God himself to change us, to act upon us. This is why reading the passage gives us such great encouragement and hope. We see that God really does love man in giving us Christ to die on the cross for sins so that we would be freed from our punishment, but then also pouring out his spirit so that our hearts would be changed so that we would love him. And we see that he really fulfills his promises. He loves man so much that he reached out once again in his eternal son, Jesus Christ, and where we should have received our punishment justly, Christ bears it for his people. So he bears the wrath that we ourselves deserve. Where we should have died and borne God's just punishment, Christ bores it for us. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not wanting any to perish, now God calls all. Now, ever since he poured out his spirit, since the apostles were heralding this message, so we continue to herald the message that all who turn from their sins and call out on the name of the Lord will, in fact, be saved and receive forgiveness of sins, right standing with God, adoption into his family, where we know God's peace, Christ who is peace. Christ, his death on the cross for sins and his resurrection to new life is the heart of the gospel that is the good news of Jesus Christ. And you, friends, can know this good news for yourself if you would repent of your sins and believe on him. The Bible says here again, right there, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Repent of your sins and believe on Christ for salvation. If you're a member of First Baptist Church, I hope you are reminded that God has acted on you. If you're a Christian, born-again Christian, God himself has acted by his sovereign grace on you to bring yourself, to bring you to salvation. We can read this, right, Acts chapter 2, and think, whoa, it's amazing that these people really are miraculously speaking in tongues. And rightly so, because this is an act of God. But I hope you're primarily amazed because this is really all of it. If you're saved, it really is all of God's doing for us what we can't do for ourselves because of our own sin. Behind everything that goes on here stands your merciful God who is faithful to accomplish all that he has promised, not because of anything you have done, but because of his own sovereign grace and mercy, his own steadfast love and mercy. Think about it, friends. Think about when God brought you to salvation. Maybe when your parent shared the gospel with you. Or maybe it was through that friend who was bold enough to call out, to call you out on your fake Christianity, which I know some of our members have experienced this. They had friends who called them out on their fake Christianity. And then they realized they weren't Christians. And then in that moment, they came to know Christ, the Lord and Savior, through the Spirit of God. They saw that there was no fruit in their own lives. And so they turned to, under, to look at the word more and sought to understand the gospel more. Right, friends? That's some of, that's some of you guys. Or, or maybe you grew up in the church, and then just one day out of nowhere, even though you had heard hundreds of sermons, one day... You hear the gospel preached in a sermon, and by the Spirit's power, it lands on you differently, in a different way. 
in such a way to really cause you to understand that you stand before Yahweh, the great Lord, sovereign over all, who has ownership rights over you and that you had sinned against him. Friends, if you believe any of that, if you believe in Jesus, you realize that that's God's sovereign, unmerited grace given to you. In fact, acted upon you as you were under your, the conviction of sin, as you turned and then believed upon Jesus, being convinced that he has the words of life. That's the Spirit convicting you. That's the Spirit giving you the new birth. That's God lavishing his love upon you and calling you into his family. We're hearing about God's sovereign work of pouring out his spirit here in Acts chapter 2 and then remembering how God himself has done this in our own lives. It makes us as individual Christians so grateful, knowing that God himself has opened our eyes to believe on the crucified and resurrected Savior. It is this Jesus that we have believed upon, and it is this Jesus that saved the disciples. It is this Jesus that they go on and speak about and preach about as they were filled with the Spirit of God. This brings us to point number three. Filled with the Spirit of God, the disciples were filled. Point number three. Look there again at verse four. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, when it comes to receiving the Spirit or being filled with the Spirit, there's a lot that could be said if we just consider the whole Bible's teaching about what this means, right? But here, right, Acts chapter 2, what does it mean that they were filled? Now, to understand here this, this one instance, we do, in fact, need to back up a little bit. It's good to know that this language of being filled here is not meant to be technical language, okay? It's not meant to be technical language where it means the same thing at every point in time. That's not what it means. To see what it means, right, you have to look and consider the usage of filled in its context. So thinking generally about, about Luke, for example, who wrote the book, the Gospel of Luke, and then also Acts, um, he uses the word filled with the Spirit, and we know that he uses it for divine empowerment, right, for a particular service, to speak the Word of God, for example. We know, too, that there can be fresh fillings or multiple fillings throughout the course of the Christian life. So there can be fresh fillings for such ministry. But as we look here in our passage, filled here in our passage, it, it does in fact highlight divine empowerment. But we cannot forget the bigger picture of what's going on here. There are actually two different things going on. There are two different things going on here. The first certainly is divine empowerment as the disciples are filled with the Spirit. But of course, there's something else going on here. There's something different going on here. The second thing is also what is called the baptism of the Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit. Again, this is exactly what Jesus said would happen there in Acts chapter 1, verse 5. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. It is also synonymous with receiving the Spirit. So to be baptized in the Spirit is synonymous to receive the Spirit. And in our passage where we think, right, when we're trying to look at our passage, but at the same time bring sort of the big picture to bear here on this one passage, they are being baptized with the Spirit, which refers to conversion. Okay, guys? So baptism of the Spirit refers to conversion. Happens once in your life. If you were to look at the rest of the book of Acts, there are not subsequent baptisms of the Spirit. Now, this is important for some of us 
who come from, let's say, the Pentecostal or charismatic background. If you look in the book of Acts, there are not subsequent baptisms of the Spirit of a person who already believes. Baptism of the Spirit happens once at conversion. It's not that there are multiple baptisms of the Spirit in the Christian life. However, in our particular passage, again, what is highlighted, what is highlighted here in this language of being filled is this empowerment, okay? So summary, baptism refers to conversion, happens once, filled, can occur multiple times over the course of your life. And we're going to have plenty of time to look at this as we walk through the book of Acts, but that's really important to know here. As we've talked about divine empowerment, notice what they do when they are filled. What do they do when they are filled, guys? Look at verse 4. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. What is this speaking in tongues? The issue has certainly generated a lot of discussion, so what is it? First, here in the book of Acts, it is to miraculously speak in another language. It is to miraculously speak in another language. This is not gibberish. This is an actual language. This is an, these are intelligible languages. Now, how do we know? Look there at verse 6. Look there at verse 6. The multitude of the Jewish diaspora, or the Jews who had spread across the empire, had come together, right? These Jews had come from different cultures. They had been born in different cultures. But they had come together. And it's they who are bewildered and amazed and astonished because each one was hearing what? They were hearing them, that is the 120, speak in his own language. And then verses 7 to 11 makes clear, the lands from which these visitors came are listed out. Those born in modern-day Iran and Iraq, the Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, the residents of Mesopotamia. Those born in Judea, which also encompasses this broad area of Syria. Those born in modern-day Turkey, that is Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia. Those born in northern Egypt, those born in Rome, all sorts of people. Jews and those who had converted to Judaism, those God-fearers, what do they say? We hear them telling in our own tongues. The tongues in which we were born. There, think of the, those different tongues that the people were speaking all across the Roman Empire. The mighty works of God. You see, it is very clear that these are actually intelligible languages that the people here were speaking. And, and then it's verified. It is infirmed that they are hearing them speak these things. And if you think back to the mission to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, we know what God is doing through these initial disciples here these folks who had become Christians. You can imagine how these Christians return, right? They, all those Christians who had, who had come, oh, sorry, all those Jews who had come to Jerusalem, they become Christians, many of them, and then they all go back to their different lands. They all return, bringing home the good news of Jesus Christ on their lips. As the harvest continues, and more and more people turn from their sin and believe on Christ, and they are added to the church it's those people who return back home. All by God's sovereign plan and purposes, remember this. So if you think back to the passage that Adrian read for us, what did he read for us? He read for us from the, the account of the Tower of Babel, right? And the curse there for man's pride, the curse for sin is that God brings confusion and disunity by making them all speak different languages. They can't understand each other. Well, here at Pentecost, many Christians in history have said that something of the reversal of the curse of disunity at Babel is taking place in the pouring out of the Spirit of God. Knowing that the people had different languages, God here enables His people to speak these different languages. 
so that those who believe on Jesus Christ would have unity, ultimately, finally, not in a language, but in the message that the language heralds. The Christ that the message, that the language heralds. It is not a unity pre-Babel. It's not to a return to a holier Babel. What God here is doing is that he's giving his people a taste of the heavenly community where those who worship Christ and those, quote, from every nation, tribe, and peoples, and languages is what it says there in Revelation 7, 9. It's fellowship in the Son and in his good news. I look forward to speaking more on this when we get to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and 47, the unity there that is in Christ Jesus. For now, notice that when they are filled with the Spirit, the emphasis is on their speaking, speaking, definitely so, but even more so on the content of their speaking. What's the emphasis? It's on the content of their speech, the mighty works of God, the mighty works of God, it says. We could focus more on the speaking in tongues here. We could compare and contrast about how Paul speaks of it in 1 Corinthians 14 as he speaks about there as a, as a gift of the Spirit. But here, given Christ's promises to wait for the Spirit to the early disciples, and then as Christ pours out his Spirit, and then as his disciples speak and herald the mighty works of God, we want to highlight in all of this what God the Sovereign One is doing at work as He fulfills all of His promises in Jesus Christ. The mighty works of God is in Christ is what forms the church. It is the flag that the church carries forward. It is the mighty works of God in Christ that the miracle of speaking in tongues exalts and advances. Notice the miraculous tongues, right? It affirms the truths about the even more miraculous Christ, crucified for sin, raised for, from the dead for our justification. And not only that, though, the, the miraculous also, also multiplies those who go on to speak about the truths of Jesus Christ. That's what tongues does. It affirms the more miraculous, Jesus risen from the dead, and multiplies those who will testify to his truth. Again, the banner over the truth uh, over the church is the mighty works of God in Jesus Christ. This certainly has pertinent application for our life together as a church. Just as those early disciples knew their mission was to herald the gospel of Jesus, so we today as God's people seek to do the exact same. We at First Baptist Church, you as Christians, members of the church, should be, want to be, speaking of the mighty works of God given to us here in the word of God that testifies to Jesus. It is all about God's salvation plan fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so practically, what does this look like? Practically, this is why we are committed to expositional preaching, where we preach through different books of the Bible, aiming to make sure that the main point of the passage is the main point of the sermon. And as, as an earthly outpost of God's heavenly kingdom, we want to make sure that Christ is preached every single Sunday as we are gathered. So we ourselves are built up as the body of Christ and so that those who come and visit us would come to know Christ and so that you Christians would be trained up to go out and to share that gospel of Christ as his appointed ambassador to your family, to your workplace, to your neighborhoods, all for the glory of Jesus Christ so that God would continue this great and miraculous harvest bringing people into his people who have Christ as the head. Here we see the beginnings of the church 
at Pentecost. The disciples anticipate. The Spirit here is poured out in fulfillment of God's promises. The disciples are filled so that they might speak the mighty works of God. We look forward to getting into what exactly Peter says as he explains this to all of the crowd, as we see thousands of people come to know Jesus, and then as we see the church move towards great unity in the Spirit of Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, amidst the miraculous that we see here as the disciples begin to speak in tongues, Lord, we pray that our minds would in fact be pointed to the greater miraculous, the fact that Christ, you have risen from the dead and you have ascended on high to the right hand of the Father where you have all authority once again, all glory and all honor. Lord, we pray here that as we look at the beginnings of the church, that we ourselves as a church would really be focused on the mission of the church, to herald your gospel, empowered by the Spirit, having new hearts, and in experiencing unity in this gospel in Jesus Christ. So Lord, we pray that we ourselves would be, would be searching us, that you would search us so that we might see where we have gone astray or we might see how we have become distracted, or we might see how our mouths are not opened as they should be in relation to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, that in the midst of all of this, even though we sin regularly, we thank you that you are a forgiving God. So we pray, Lord, that by your spirit, you would convict us of our sins, that you would, in fact, narrow our focus, that you would cause our hearts to latch on to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we cling on even more And that in the lives that you give us, we would live faithfully here in this place as we know that the harvest is plentiful. We pray, God, that you would make us great and faithful workers, all according to your spirit in humility, in dependence upon you. We thank you, God, that you are the God who fulfills all of your promises. And we see this happening here in Acts chapter 2. And we see it even happening in our own very lives, how you are so steadfast in your love in giving us Jesus Christ and in Christ you pouring out the Spirit for us. In your name we pray, amen.